That's the first step is when we identify the diversity within our life, whether it be origin, whether it be family condition, whether it be body size, then that helps us to recognize that diversity is not this ominous thing. And I'm finding that my leaders are now much more excited about finding ways in which to frame their work so that it's more equitable and more diverse. This is Jennifer Grandberry, and you're listening to Voices from the Field, insights from educators who are positively impacting student learning in the classroom. In this episode, Arlana Bedard, a Program and Services Director with Consortium for Educational Change, speaks with Carol Collins Ian Laja, an Assistant Professor at Eastern Illinois University. Carol and Arlana talk about the intersectionalities of race and gender and their impact on educational leadership. I know you've served in multiple capacities um, across the education sphere. Mm -hmm. I know you've been a teacher, principal, district director, chief academic officer, chief research and assessment officer, as well as superintendent Mm -hmm. in a host of districts. Mm Um, from Cincinnati, Chicago, Sioux City, Iowa, Hartford, Connecticut, as well as suburban Cook County. Mm -hmm. Um, You currently are assistant professor um, at the School of Education at Eastern Illinois University. You consider yourself to be an initiator, propeller, and implementer of equitable, culturally competent teaching and leadership practices. You're currently engaged, along with that, you're currently engaged in research focused on the intersectionalities of race and gender and the experiences of racially and culturally marginalized parents and educational leaders. So I need to pause for a minute, Carol. (laughs) And I would like, I want to hear about your personal experiences. Before we get to that, though, I would like you to tell me a little bit about what it means to be focused on the intersectionalities of race and gender and the experiences of racially and culturally marginalized parents and leaders. What does that mean? Intersectionalities means that we acknowledge that uh, various conditions impact our experiences. So intersectionality theory focuses often on gender, race, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, All of these factors impact our experiences when we look at that against uh, systemically racialized and inequitable society, Um, especially as we look at the trajectory for uh, white males, white middle-class males, I want to be specific with that, um, and the experiences they have in comparison to other groups. So in terms of looking at that, as a reality and as a, although it's a construct, unfortunately, it just didn't uh, go poof and then it occurred, right. it was constructed here in society. We have to acknowledge that different experiences uh, impact different outcomes. And so uh, my focus, uh, even as a practitioner, educational practitioner, has always been to acknowledge that we operate under different experiences and unfortunately different standards that impact our overall success and potentially outcome and that it's important for us as informed equity-oriented folks to identify where that occurs and to provide the support so that all of us can achieve the American dream whether it be parents and family students professionals seeking to do well in their careers and rise all of us deserve a piece of the American pie and so that is exactly how I focus uh, my research and how I focus my career. How do you, um, navigating this space, um, how does that then influence you as an educator and now as a professor? So what are some of the things, how does that influence what you do and how you do it? It means that I am charged with looking through multiple lenses. It means that I am charged with stepping out of my box, whatever my contextual experience be, in case of uh, analyzing it from the standpoint of, okay, I'm an African-American woman born in the United States, my parents born in the United States, 
working middle class, Midwestern bred, Indianapolis, Indiana, attended primarily white schools. I've attended a primarily white college. All of these impact my worldview. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm the baby of three girls. Um, I'm not from a family where I'm a first generation college goer per se. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents had a bit of college, they did not complete, but those experiences have impacted me and maybe my worldview, right? My view of education, my view of the critical importance of education, the expectations that were set in my family. Now, if I am to be a leader that thinks through equitable lenses and recognizes intersectionalities, then I have to be aware of how certain conditions play out in different homes for different people, for different leaders, for different parents and children. And that means that I have to take off my set of glasses and put on another set of glasses and be willing to be humble and be willing to be practically like a baby, to be schooled so that I can understand. There's a Native American proverb about walking in another man's moccasins. And I can't quote it verbatim, but I respect that proverb because it means you don't know one story because you have your own story. But as I see it as an equity-driven leader and one who respects uh, the uh, importance of understanding intersectionalities, I may not have walked in one story, but I must seek to understand. And when I seek mm -hmm. to understand the story, then as an action-oriented leader, whether it be at the K-12 level or at the higher university, higher education level where I am now, it means that I must activate whatever skills I have to support the overall development of those that I serve. So my question for you is, um, Carol, you have, you have this awareness, you seek to understand other people's stories, connect to, I also happen to know you, so I know you seek to connect. Mm -hmm. um, how do you help others, um, whether uh, we're talking about um, students you may have worked with, um, some of the leaders I know you train, um, to be able to look through others' lenses as well as you do? One of the strategies that I uh, utilize working with my graduate students at Eastern Illinois University is to first and foremost debunk the notion of diversity. Mm -hmm. Most of my leaders that I prepare are middle-income white leaders in middle Illinois and southern Illinois. Okay. Right. So for many of them, uh, they were not exposed to Chicago in any in-depth way other than occasional visits, if that. And for some of them, Chicago is a place where they don't want to be. Mm -hmm. Now, I've spent the majority of my life in Chicago, so I have a great love of Chicago and the potential of Chicago to serve its children, its families, and its communities. But unfortunately, some of the leaders I serve don't have that particular perspective of Chicago. Chicago to them is a diverse place, and that word diverse sometimes comes off with a bit of fear, almost like it's an, an other kind of uncharted territory and a scary place to be. So one of the ways I wanted to build relationships with my students when I started at EIU in 2016 was I wanted to first debunk this notion of diversity as being a foreign thing. The diverse people, whether mm -hmm. it be the blacks, the browns, you know, the, mm -hmm. the various communities, the poor white children, they're di those are the diverse people. No, I said, let's take a look at ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I charged my leaders who are, who are working with me to prepare for either principalship or superintendency. I charged them with saying, how are you diverse? What is diverse about your situation? We're going to change this definition of diversity. And I have had numerous leaders, my leaders that I'm working with to develop, have said to me, thank you, Dr. Collins, I and Laja, for helping me redefine diversity. Mm -hmm. So in their demographic surveys, when they're, when they're writing their papers, which I always ask for a demographic survey of their schooling environment, they go narrow and deep. They go narrow and deep, trying to dissect their community, whether it be these children are special ed children, these children were raised in trailer parks, these children have single parent homes. So they're redefining this notion of whiteness as everybody's the same. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And it's very powerful because I think that's the first step is when we identify from our own perspective the diversity within our life, whether it be origin, whether it be family condition, whether it be body size, family composition, whatever it may be, then that helps us to recognize that diversity is not this ominous thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm finding that my leaders are now much more excited about finding ways in which to frame their work so that it's more equitable and more diverse. Now, one of the expectations is if they're from districts which do not have approximately 20% or more students who are non-white, mm -hmm. then they have to do like a diversity visit. They find other districts to go to, whether it be Champaign or a Danville or Decatur, a neighboring district where they're going to get what's considered racially diverse students. They're excited about that now. It's mm -hmm. not a chore. Mm -hmm. They're excited about it because they've already thought about their own diversity. And one of the most powerful things is when you have uh, one of my students who's gone on to become a superintendent in central Illinois, a district like hers, which is primarily rural, middle-class white, doing a visit day at one of the smaller urbans like Decatur or Danville. I can't recall which one, but she was so excited because they'd actually done a teaming day with mm -hmm. students on some sort of an activity, and she was very excited about that because not only did it stretch her, but it stretched the students in her small community. So it's those kind of things, I think, that then begin to help folks feel more comfortable in having thoughts that might be beyond their experience. And I think that when we create those safe spaces, we open the door mm -hmm. to real, authentic engagement. And I think that's even evident in, like you said, you know me and I know you. The only reason we've been able to know each other and build a strong professional and personal relationship is because we've been able to be authentic with each other. We've been able to share. And that was created because we were able to develop a safe space to do mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I basically think that that's what's critical just for any person, any group of folks working together, communities across this country or world. Let's create a safe space recognizing diversity exists in all of us, and then we can stretch and say, okay, now what's different about this situation? Oh, okay, or hey, what's the same about this situation mm -hmm. that I can immediately identify? Because unfortunately, the racialization of this country has caused us to automatically think in terms of what we see, and if you appear to be like me, by color, then you're just like me. Mm -hmm. And we haven't been able to go under the surface of that mm -hmm, to say, mm -hmm. yeah, I know we might be similar skin tones, but what is your story? What is my story? Are they really that similar? Or am I even more attuned to someone who might have a different color with a similar story? How do we now integrate that? And I think that's critical for leaders today at all levels, and especially educational leaders, because they have a direct impact on the child, and then the child works in extension with the family, the community, and it's long-range work. There's a trajectory. What type of adult does that child become when those seeds are planted at that schoolhouse? I really appreciate um, what you were sharing. I know that uh, within our organization, some of the equity work we're engaged with, there are a few different frameworks, which is mm -hmm. a little more technical, that um, we operate with, whether it's uh, reflect, connect, and apply. In other words, it starts with yourself. You mm -hmm. have to reflect who you are, where you are, and then start thinking about the ways you connect with those who are, and then, and then how do you then take it to another level? How do you apply this knowledge to grow as a teacher, as a leader, to help your students grow. I know that the National Equity Project emphasizes um, uh, something like, it's called inside out. Mm -hmm. That you start inside who you are, and, mm -hmm. and that reflection is really important. I want to um, extend what you were just saying, which mm -hmm. um, I'm imagining so this is working with um, graduate students, um, colleagues, in terms mm -hmm. of let's, let's, let's really do some um, reflection about where we are and let's engage ourselves in different ways and, and affirm mm -hmm. those experiences and, and talk about them. Um, I know that within 
schools and districts, we often have a difficult time engaging our parents, mm -hmm. um, whether or not they look like us, especially, right. especially, particularly when the students get older, they're older, so you have in the middle school, high school, mm -hmm. um, or if the feeling, the identity of the educators in the building and the leaders is, is in contrast or feels like it's in contrast to the surrounding community. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of your thoughts about how we can um, engage our parents and community members as more authentic partners because it is a challenge. Well, one of the areas that uh, higher education institutions, I'm with Eastern Illinois University, we're always seeking to identify how we can get to know our families and communities better. Now, I'm in ed leadership, uh, that is my department, but recently I'll give an example. One of my colleagues, one of the professors in counseling, uh, she created uh, in her classes opportunities for students to be exposed to diversity racially. So I was asked to talk about my experience, talk about my family, talk about some of the issues I felt were pertinent in, in my community. And as were uh, several Latino students and adults and other groups, other African-American younger uh, individual students speaking from this particular uh, decade, younger people. So it was very powerful because what it did was it opened the door. I received probably 15 to 20 letters from that class mm -hmm. thanking me. Mm -hmm. And I did not anticipate that. Mm -hmm. They were thanking me for giving me a window to look through about my life and about the experiences. Because the reality is there are some folks that may never really come in contact with diverse families or colleagues, potentially, depending on their level of exposure and where they are. Mm -hmm. uh, and that means that they don't have a scope on any of the particular characteristics of groups of people or families or communities. And unfortunately, they may be impacted by media, which may be skewed and give mm -hmm. unfair depictions. And so that opportunity that that professor uh, provided was primo as an educator because she offered the opportunities for her students to have very candid dialogues with someone else that she classified as racially different from them. So that was a powerful piece. Now you talked about how do we kind of navigate this contrast and really build authentic uh, involvement for our parents beyond race, beyond social class, mm -hmm. beyond gender, all of those pieces. I think first and foremost is we create as leaders um, uh, organizational goal of being those that are community minded. And what does that mean? Even if it means setting standards collectively as leaders, what does it mean to be community-minded? What are the expectations when you are a community-minded person? And I know, Arlana, you spoke earlier about uh, reflection. Reflections first and foremost. Being able to reflect on who am I? How have my experiences shaped my life? Who are my students? Who are my parents? Can I make assumptions that experiences have shaped their lives in the same way? Do I know? And if I don't know, how do I find out? Right. And one of the pieces of research that I have presented when I've taught organizational development for superintendents is that trust is often, within an organization, is often developed or perceived when you're within an organization by the value of relationships. Okay. On the outside of an organization, trust is kind of identified by what the product looks like. So if we put that in school terms, if you look like a good school, I may be living in the community. I said, oh, that's a good school. The scores look good. Now, I've never stepped inside, but I believe it's good because of the way it looks, hmm. whether it be on paper or it's a beautiful, shiny building or what have you, because I'm on the outside of the organization. Now, within the organization, trust is made by how do we act? What's our climate? What's our culture? Mm -hmm. But those are the folks on the inside. Mm -hmm. Now. I propose that if we can begin to think about our parents as insiders, not outsiders, but insiders, if we can begin to think of our parents as insiders, then that's going to be trust is developed through authentic relationships, and we're going to do all we can to build those relationships. 
which means we're going to find a way to learn more about our parents, which means we as a school are going to say, okay, what are our operating standards? What does this look like? Does this look like, hey, let us educate you, which is what I would say my former superintendent, District 132, Dr. Elizabeth Reynolds, hosted Let Us Educate You Day when I served under her several years ago. And that was parents come on in. Take a look at our schools, take a look at our hall, take a look at our classrooms, meet our teachers. I enjoyed so much as a principal participating when I led Baroque Elementary School because it was an open door. Children were guides. This is where I go every day. So it was a type of opportunity for parents to debunk any belief systems that they may have had about the school being separate of them and coming into the school along with community members. So I definitely feel that that is a critical strategy, whether it be getting folks to come in, which takes relationship building, which can be done at multiple points, whether it be report card pickup day, whether it be the way in which the teacher communicates, whether it be acknowledging and awarding students, because parents love to celebrate their kids, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Any way that we can create opportunities, even a community schools model where the school becomes a place where parents come. Often there are parent rooms in many schools across the country, this country and districts where I've worked, there's been parent rooms. When I served at Orr High School several years ago, numerous years ago, uh, we tried to create opportunities for parents to meet for parents to come in and see student work, for parents to participate. At that time, I even employed parent volunteers to help me with attendance. So there's so many ways we can create school-centric, excuse me, we can shift school-centric involvement to parent-centric involvement, which means how can you help the school? Not, these are the defined roles I have for you. This is where you can be safe in the school, meaning I feel comfortable as a teacher, as administrator, for you to do this versus what would you like to do mm -hmm. to support mm -hmm. the growth and the progress of our school? What do you think you can bring to the table as a parent? Mm -hmm. That means that parent who's a PhD can say, I can bring A, B, C, D. I can tutor kids in quantum physics. That parent who is in a high school graduate can say, hey, I can do A, B, C. I can help with attendance, perhaps. I can cook. I can whatever I can do. But it's about saying your skills are important to us and creating that dynamic that we can have healthy conversations in and around our children and our school. And another thing I think is critical, when I was a superintendent in District 227, uh, I remember I did a day where I had parents come in for curriculum conversations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that was a positive day because it offered the opportunity for my content area teachers, this was a high school district, counselors, to now tell parents, this is what we do. This is how we serve students. This is what common core instruction looks like in social sciences or the mathematics department. So right there, you're debunking the fear mm -hmm. of for what for many is a very ominous institution, the schoolhouse. And you're also debunking any possibility that teachers or administrators are considered elitist, standoffish, and unwelcoming. So there's many layers where we can build these organizations through parent-centric involvement, through being open and honest organizations, uh, offering opportunities for parents to engage, for creating internal standards which emanate the we love you community, even to a point where when you look at teacher development programs, there's more of a need for immersion. For teachers who are preparing to teach, teach pre-teacher candidates for leaders, to even actually go into communities and learn about what happens here? Mm -hmm. And I remember as a teacher years ago in the Latino community here in Chicago, I was pleased to, to go to 18th Street mm -hmm. and visit Libreria Machica and go to El Junque Bookstore in the Puerto Rican community and eat the food and experience the people. So if that is one of the things that we can do in order to build our own knowledge, cultural knowledge, and also engage in knowledge exchange, then we're automatically dismantling some of those barriers mm -hmm. that are created through systemic racism and then even the idea of the system, beyond racism, just mm -hmm. the system of education. Mm -hmm. We need to debunk some of that. Mm -hmm. And that leads us to what you're saying, that more authentic engagement at all levels. So I would like to push you a little bit more mm -hmm. on that. And that was um, a really thought-provoking response to the question in terms of... Um, 
I, I think, a, a very holistic, you know, it's, again, it, it starts with the reflection mm -hmm. and also spending some time collectively to define, for example, what does it mean to be community-minded? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, I want to push you because um, in my work and also not just my current work, past mm -hmm. work, um, there are schools um, that have worked really hard to connect with the community, connect with parents, um, whether or not um, they readily identify, some readily identify the community, they're from the community, mm -hmm. um, yet they still struggle with feeling that there's a real partnership with parents and have, have maybe tried. Um, and I know it's not about checking something off and you try it once and it worked or it didn't. Um, but I really feel stymied in this arena. Um, can you share a, a practice that you're aware of or have come across recently that you thought was particularly innovative? Um, I know, and the reason why I'm pushing on this is because I think some of the, you know, in many of our schools right now, um, with uh, parents being able to check grades automatically mm -hmm. online, mm -hmm. with um, you know the various demands that are a little different than they were maybe 20 years ago, um, schools just are, they just feel like it's getting more and more complicated. Can you share um, a practice that you thought was particularly innovative, um, where they did the reflection, they thought collectively, and and then they implemented something that, that really changed, it was a game changer. And that's a big ask of me right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but is there something um, that could really help um, in terms of some specifics that a school district could try or a school? Well, I'm gonna talk about practices that I think can lead to that. Okay. Because I don't have Thank a you. panacea answer for yeah, that. Of course, of course. Because this is developmental work. Right. But I think first and foremost is the acknowledgement that parents need to be engaged in contributing to policy decisions, policy and decision making, uh, through democratic processes of engagement. Yep. Okay. And that to me looks like offering opportunities for focus groups, an ongoing data-driven environment. Okay. Mm -hmm. I remember as a superintendent, one of the things I attempted to do uh, and was able to put out on the internet was the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. Now, the purpose of that was to be transparent and to get parent feedback from that particular document. Some of the feedback I received was more informal, where folks spoke to me about what they had seen. Did I receive mass feedback? No, I did not receive mass feedback. But it was my transparency, I think, which was a first step. Building trust. To building trust, mm -hmm. yes. And having parents be able to look through some of the goals of the school, the board mission, what, what was the collective expectation over a continuum of time. So I'm going to say that that to me is critical because you will never have the real engagement if we don't debunk some of the distrust that exists. Now if I were to speak to that, especially from the standpoint of minority communities, racial minority communities in this country, we have to acknowledge that the system has never been something that they felt has been on their side. Mm -hmm. Whether it be law enforcement, whether it be education, or what have you, banking system, and no, none of those systems. So automatically you've got, although you have a belief in education, there very well may be a concern about whether or not it would be a fair process, especially for their children, right? And I'm speaking from the research that I've done, which is focused on parents of black children. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, with that, you've automatically got that belief that they're doing what they're going to do. Where do I fit into the spectrum? Mm -hmm. And then we often see parents arrive when? When there's a problem. Right. They're upset right. Right. when there's a problem. Right. So I'm going to say that a key is transparency. Mm -hmm. I think individually, uh, principals, superintendents can create opportunities where parents are engaged in more than just surface activities, such as coming to games or mm -hmm. selling raffle tickets, things of that nature, but more into the democratization of the school, such as sharing. What do you think of this particular policy? How would this policy enact, do you believe in the best interest of your child? Now, we all know that Although policy is broad, people can all comment on policy. Principal superintendents, they deal with procedure and the administration of it, correct? 
So they would make the decisions on how it's implemented. But mm -hmm. even creating that space, all right, would be very, very good. Something I've been involved in recently in, in some of my other uh, uh, responsibilities, uh, volunteer responsibilities and spiritual uh, engagement has been that idea of caucusing, mm. right? And so uh, caucusing can occur for many groups, all right, mm -hmm. um, as it relates to a particular subject, a particular issue. Can you tell, can you explain what that is? For me, it has been regarding um, how, to, how to ensure that uh, the work of uh, my particular faith has, uh, is, is taking an introspective look at uh, racism uh, within the body of the faith over time. And that requires racial caucusing where uh, African American or other peoples of color or people of color collectively, we come together and we look at what do we think about this particular issue uh, white congregants think of, talk it from their perspective, what they think, and then we come back together and we share what were some what was some of the out, outgrowth mm -hmm. of our caucusing in what could be considered a common space for each group where they were free to share. And I have found that it's very very powerful, a very very powerful piece. Um, and I'm saying even that type, not necessarily caucusing in the same way, but offering uh, focus group opportunities where schools create mm -hmm. opportunities for key issues, whether it's establishing a more effective discipline program or ensuring that there's more culturally relevant, engaging curriculum and pedagogical practices. What would stop us as leaders in engaging parents in that process? Mm -hmm. Just to hear what they're saying right, right. in a safe space, which means that it may not mean that we have a teacher uh, right. there. Right. Parents just get together and share and provide their output. Teachers get together and share, provide their output. We come back together in a safe space. No one is identified. We shared common understandings and divergent understandings, right? So that we, we understand that uh, this is what you thought, this is what I thought. Now, what does it look like in terms of an action plan? Mm -hmm. So often I think... What has happened was is our school improvement planning, our district improvement planning, we've grabbed a couple parents here and there. That's right. Right? Yeah. And we know that as principals. Mm -hmm. We get, grab a couple so that we can engage them, but true enough, it's an expectation that they be involved. I think a key from the inside for the leadership perspective can be how do we strengthen it? How do we strengthen those moments of inclusion so that there doesn't become a, a perspective of excessive exclusion? which is when parents then get involved with complaints about the school. So I don't have in my career any uh, initiative that I would say would ever, ever be a pinnacle experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, to sit here as a longstanding leader and say it's been a pinnacle, but it has offered, uh, my charge has been to offer opportunities that were authentic mm -hmm. for engagement and on all, on, every level I've done that, whether mm -hmm. it be through volunteerism, mm -hmm. whether it be through parent engagement in decision making, whether it be sharing my goals and the goals of my district with families and communities and attempting to get feedback, whether it be having them come in to understand the curricular structure, mm -hmm. which is often different than what schools do. They don't often talk about what is Common Core. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when I was Chief Academic Officer in Hartford, Connecticut, uh, one of the pieces that I did with the director of post-secondary education was get ready for college, get ready for life. And what we did, our departments, academics and post-secondary ed, we took our teams out throughout Hartford. We went out in force and then began to share everything we knew, my department did, about what is Common Core. Yeah, yeah. We had parents learn what the... Um, Smarter Balance was, the SBAC, and what are these tests, and what does it mean to have uh, adaptive assessment, and what does all of that mean, computer adaptive? And they began to just learn the language, which was powerful, learning the difference between, pretty much on the East Coast, it's SAT, learning what that means, you know, to be able to have a test that really is testing your reasoning skills. Mm -hmm. That was powerful, mm -hmm. because you had all levels of parents coming in to see, what is my child learning? Mm -hmm. And they became more adept at even being able to use vocabulary of the school, mm -hmm. which increases what? The respect they get 
when they go in the school. They can have intelligent dialogues. So I think if we build more upon those opportunities mm -hmm. to move our parents into very authentic engagement where they become knowledge brokers about what school should be, the purposes of school, some of the policy and practices, then we're going to create stronger relationships, what you're advocating for. Now, with that, there's going to be that fear factor from some of us on the inside. Oh, no, if they know, if they know, are they going to be complaining about us? Are they going to be watchdogging us? Because we know the media often pummels schools and school districts. But if they know the right stuff, they're going to stop, look, and listen and say, now, I think the school did this well, all right? I think that they followed that step appropriately. They'll become more, because often with knowledge, as we know, I believe it was Francis Bacon, knowledge is power. Mm -hmm. When you know something and you can apply it properly, it's a better situation. Mm -hmm. I, you really highlighted um, so much that I think would help us, those of us who are in schools and districts, to really kind of reconceive you know, the role um, the relationship with parents mm -hmm. in the community. Um, I really liked how you highlighted this idea of being really supporting our families to be knowledge brokers. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty safe to say we don't do that. We don't think, we think about it, um, we need to inform them about X, Y, Z, but those, those experiences tend to be very limited and kind of one-offs and not on ongoing. So. That has so many implications when we talked earlier about, you know, this collective thinking. What does that mean? And then based on what you said, and then even moving to the point where we're social innovators within the education space, I may not even have liked school mm -hmm. when I went to school. I may not trust the school, but the potential for people to actually be able to innovate if they have the information, if they have those relationships, I think that is um, kind of where, that's where we want to go. That's where we want to be. Um, I like the focus on, in doing so, you're really broadening those, um, the scope of those relationships because oftentimes in schools we have the key parents mm -hmm. who show up for, every, not just show up, but they're, mm -hmm. they're engaged, they give you feedback on things, but you're missing whole segments. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a reason why we're missing. And we just have sometimes a real difficult time trying to tap. One of the things I don't see as much um, is parents as decision makers in terms of what's happening within that school and district. And, and so these are some really strong, um, really important ideas that if I were a leader, a teacher, I'll just say educator, mm -hmm. um, I really want to explore more. Um, I'm assuming you would be open if somebody were to reach out to you. Um, we want to see what this looks like. Mm -hmm. um, we'd love to hear about schools that are really pushing the envelope mm -hmm. with respect to um, these practices. So um, I just want to get a yay or nay from you that our listeners could potentially reach out to you for more information. I definitely would support any of our colleagues. And moreover, I would want to support organizations in creating the mindset. That's mm -hmm. a critical starting point, the mm -hmm. mindset. Because we all know that the mind drives our actions or our inaction. And so once we look at our families through the lenses of what we would think of as the diverse cultural capital, recognizing the uniqueness that they bring to the table, and then being able to say, now what does that look like in terms of any type of partnership with institutional capital? Because institutional capital is very different than familial capital, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, right? and we have to bridge that gap. That right there, supported by a focus within school districts to improve the um, the attitudes and the prior um, unfortunate, perhaps even stereotyping. There's research out there that we have stereotyped some communities, mm -hmm. especially marginalized communities of color. And, and, and with that, minimize any belief that they are of value. And like you said, that it's important for us to engage in authentic relationship building as step one, which means debunking mm -hmm. all of that that's been put in us 
about whether it be a side of town, a particular type of school, what the student scores look like, and then acknowledging that first and foremost, those children are the gift of some family. Yes. And they gave them to this That's system with the belief that the child will be safe, secure, and come back more educated than they left home. And so with that, we've got to go into an internal mode, recognizing where we fall when we look at Dr. Joyce Epstein and the work mm -hmm. that she's done mm -hmm. on parent engagement, mm -hmm. where we fall on that continuum, and being open to exploring all pieces of that continuum. But the, the, the first part, I can't emphasize enough will be our own examination, our own organizational scan, mm -hmm. our own uh, determination of what does it look like. You, know, you can't seek a vision until you concretely identify what does this look like for us as a school community, a community of leaders, a community of teachers. And now, what does that look like internally and what will that look like in our external outreach? Which is, which is key. And much of the work that um, I've engaged in with my interest in the experiences of diverse leaders, superintendents and, and other levels of leaders has been that many of them are very committed, very, very, very committed mm -hmm. to offering opportunities to truly, truly benefit their communities and create an innovative and highly successful and engaged relationship with their, with their communities um, because of, of political reasons and because of stereotyping often of diverse, racially and gender diverse uh, leaders, women leaders, they don't always have the opportunity, mm -hmm. right? They often are focused with the dance between the board and their role, which is not always a positive and supportive dance. So there's so many things that have to go on within the organization, I think, to get the functioning paradigm that now emanates to the community. Mm -hmm. And once that paradigm is, hey, I'm, I'm not, you're not heavy, you're my brother, you're my sister, I care about your progress, teacher to teacher, leader to teacher, teacher to leader, superintendent to principals, principal to superintendent, board to superintendent, superintendent to board, that emanates then we are an open environment for other folks to join mm -hmm. us in this mission, which now means, parents, I care about your outcome. I care about your child. I care about you. And we can then de develop exactly what you're saying, that forward thinking. So the organizational mind shift is critically important. Mm -hmm. And I truly support that work because I know that that is the first step to creating exactly what you said, real models of participation that are going to be game changers in involvement. One of the reasons that we started um, thinking about spending some concentrated time on diverse leadership in terms of building a, a diverse leadership team, whether it's at the school or district level, is that our organization, uh, Consortium for Educational Change, our mission, we, we focus on those partnerships and um, mm -hmm. that collaborative piece. So because our missions are so tightly wound, we felt that um, it made a whole lot of sense for us to collaborate on this idea of really supporting um, school and district leaders to really diversify their bench and really think about ways they can re recruit, retain, take care of mm -hmm. um, diverse leaders. So I, I just would like to spend some time on that. Um, so that we can um, highlight some of the ways that um, districts, and I think we've talked about it mm -hmm. in terms of reflecting on where you are, building yourself mm -hmm. up mm -hmm. um, on the personal level, on the organizational level. And mm -hmm. when you do that, mm -hmm. um, you build those opportunities for those trusting partnerships and relationships. Mm -hmm. People feel it's a safer place, mm -hmm. so they're more likely to want to be there to contribute because they know they'll be honored and, and, and um, there will be a, a more opportunity for the, that authentic relationship. Mm -hmm. Is that? Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> yeah, okay. You hit the nail so, on the head. So, um, so I'm in. A, I'm a, a district leader right now, and we collectively have been doing a lot of reflection and really want to um, m make sure that the decision-making structure is um, 
populated or has input from um, diverse communities throughout our district, as well as at the leadership table. But we're having a really difficult time in terms of recruitment. Um, our table does not look very diverse. And I'm, I'm, I'm including racially diverse, but mm -hmm. I'm, I'm extending it as well beyond mm -hmm. racial diversity, mm -hmm. economic diversity, et cetera. So I'm wondering, what are some ways we can think about this um, above and beyond what we've already discussed um, to do so? Well, first of all, there has to be the education of the existing team as to why it's necessary. Okay. That's critically important. Mm -hmm. We have to ensure that we're not functioning as a district on what I'll call surface-level diversity, which means we're going to have these different faces or we'll have women at the table, different colored faces or women or other uh, folks classified as diverse at the table because we have to or we must do that in order to be politically correct. We have to move away from that because even when that occurs in organizations, it stifles the organization on both sides. That diverse leader who enters is now uh, in a situation where he or she is not able to truly express from their perspective ways in which that organization can move forward. And folks around the table don't get the benefit of a truly authentic experience because we all know that in organizations, uh, it's not hard to wear the mask, to pretend. People want to keep their jobs, they want to be accepted, whatever that means. And often it stifles the real, real gifts that they can bring to the table that can help project that organization into the future. So building a reason as to why is critical. And that may even be the most difficult step because when you start talking about diversity, Folks often believe that that means you don't want me if I represent the majority. Mm. You hear that often uh, when I work with my teachers, primarily white middle income teachers, when you hear the, we don't just need, we need good teachers. It doesn't matter whether they're black, it doesn't matter whether they're white, they just have to be good. And so the conversation then shifts to good and we have to reframe that conversation. And we have to make that conversation as to, yes, we need good teachers. Now, how does the mission to have diverse teachers make it even better? Mm. Once people understand that and how that impacts them professionally, allowing them to expand, you get really powerful interplay, such as you get uh, a white male from middle America in an all-white district come up to an African-American professor, me, female, and say, Dr. Collins, I Elijah, what do you think it would take for me to prepare to compete as a candidate in a diverse district? Now, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. What do you think I need to do? How can I? Can I extend my understandings and my exposure into a diverse district? And usually the way I respond to that is, do you love children? And I remember one of my candidates said, yes, do you love all children? He said, yes. I said, do you feel that you know all children well? He said, no. I said, that's the first step. Mm -hmm. You've got to expand. You've got to find opportunities to know and embed yourself. Then I said, then you will be a very strong candidate in any district. But the fact of the matter is, I believe through our interaction, he felt even more confident and inspired to even think about mm -hmm. a broader scope for his leadership. Okay, so I think it's critical that if you are a superintendent, Dr. Bedard, and you're thinking about next steps and you're saying, gosh, no one's coming to my district, I don't know, you have to put in and plan an assertive recruitment plan. Mm -hmm. You have to engage your networks, whether it be um, Latino leaders organizations we know that exist in this country, whether it be NABSI, the National Association of Black School Educators, whether it be the NAACP, whether it be any organization, the Urban League, where there may be opportunities to gain an understanding, women-dominated organizations, women leaders, an understanding of where do I meet professionals that represent these diverse groups. And you begin to truly reach out because we know that some of the um, hiring campaigns are not really embedded. What I mean by that is sometimes districts and schools hire, they just need to hire. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. need to hire whoever they can get. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just because of timing mm -hmm. and they're not able to do a narrow and deep. My recommendation is they take the time to do a narrow and deep. They project out, they analyze, they take a look at the overall society um, needs so that their children will be prepared for 21st century learning. They take a look at the demographics of their district. They project out and they say, how can we make this district a more engaging district for all folks and for our teachers? Mm -hmm. How can we help our teachers become truly 21st century teachers? So what I mean by that is an embedded plan for recruitment is one where we've really done our homework. We've put out our feelers and they're broad. So what that means is we have to activate our networks. We have to go back, we have to ask leaders of diverse categorization, who are your networks? Do you know folks? What organizations are you part of? Are you part of a particular sorority or fraternity or, yeah. or um, are you part of a particular um, professional organization where these leaders might be active? Who are the historically Hispanic-serving organizations in this country? There are numerous. University of uh, Texas, excuse me, Texas State San Marco. Is, San Marcos, Texas is classified as a Hispanic-serving institution. African-American institutions such as historically black colleges mm -hmm. that are preparing. I mean, there's a plethora of organizations that allow leaders to find networks to get people. And, but it takes real commitment. Yes, it does. And it takes a true plan that mm -hmm. is authentic and well-intended and not focused on surface diversity. Because it means we're saying that what are the mission and visions, vision operating um, standpoints in our organization and how can you, the diverse leader, help propel that? Mm -hmm. But it means being ready around that table, that cabinet table, to have that conversation. And I can say in my career, I'm pleased having served as District Director of Curriculum Assessment in Sioux City, Iowa. I was the only African American in the cabinet of my white male superintendent. But I will say any day that the conversations that were had around that table were authentic conversations where we would discuss data, we discussed it based on students' race, gender, and we discussed equity and access. And what my superintendent didn't know himself he deferred to me, the, and the equity officer who was a Native American, and there was definitely a respect for us at the table. So superintendents have to ask themselves, do they truly embody that? And are they truly going to promote that? And I think that's the starting ground, even before you go out to look for the actual channels to find the folks. So I want to ask you, yeah. um, in terms of the landscape in Illinois, the mm -hmm. state of Illinois where we both reside, right. mm -hmm. um, what does the data say, if you happen to have it, um, around district leadership, perhaps even school leadership across the state of Illinois in terms of, I guess, demographics? Mm -hmm. Well, I can say broadly that we have over 800 superintendents in this state. All right, the majority of them overwhelmingly are white male superintendents, okay? I can say that when you look at some of the figures in terms of where our superintendents are placed, African-American and other diverse superintendents tend to be placed in certain regional pods in the state, which include the A.E. St. Louis, that region, mm -hmm. all right? There are small pockets when you think of places like Decatur, Danville, there have been leaders, diverse leaders in those districts. And moreover, it's South Cook. Uh, now, when you look across the state, mm -hmm. there are some major, major gaps. I'm not prepared to quote uh, percentages from the Illinois standpoint, but I can tell you in major studies that have been done um, uh, in the last uh, decade, by the AASA, the data showed that of the respondents, 2% of the superintendents were African-American, 2% were Latino of this major study. And I can also say you, that women have risen. I'm sorry. Yes. Do you recall the date of that study? 2010 was the date of that study, and they were doing comparative data between 2000 and 2010 the decade. So it's been in, within the last decade. There has been some growth. All right, in, in, in cases of women uh, rising in the workplace, 
there has been growth, women in roles in the superintendency. Um, and then we have to flesh that out as to how race and gender plays into that, because mm -hmm. those will be primarily white women in those roles. Mm -hmm. And then we also have to look at terms of, from the school level, women have made tremendous strides in leadership roles, those primarily being at the elementary level. Mm -hmm. When we talk about the district, the shifts in district level leadership come by slowly, relatively slowly. And much of that is because of the experiences of women of color often, or men in some cases of color, and the genderization, or shall I say, kind of the gender inequity in many cases from the standpoint of that top job. You know, that's, it is not a top job that is considered to be woman's work, so to speak. If we look statistically across the field of education, teaching is still classified to many as women's work. Would we you agree? We all carry those very strong biases. Right. That's right. And so when you look at, what are we saying, uh, women encompassing probably over 70% of the teachers, mm -hmm. then you look at men and the percentage in leadership, it's very much of a disparity. Mm -hmm. And also when you look at the number of years women spend in the classroom, by far outnumbering men, men traditionally spend right, less right. than 10 years, even sometimes only mm -hmm. five, whereas women are usually over 15 usually 20, so they're coming in much later than a lot of men who are entering the superintendency. And I can say even when I'm preparing some of my candidates, some of my men who are ready to go into either dean's positions and other assistant principal positions are going in at 25, 26. All right, they're going in early. And that means if they stay on that trajectory, they will be superintendents by their mid to late 30s, more than likely. So it also is, is very contingent on the types of relationships which you've emphasized, Arlana, how they're built, the roles in which men play when they are in teaching positions, often in coaching and other social positions, they automatically have exposures to relationships, power brokers, et cetera, which also support that opportunity. Mm -hmm whereas women are often relegated to roles of curriculum or more of the child-centered work. And there are some stereotypes that do exist, and, and this is something that I've uh, perused and looked into other studies, stereotypes that talk to speak to the skill set, preconceived notions of the skill sets of women versus well, and, men. And I have also reviewed some studies, and, and I'm wondering if we have, uh, we've read some of the same mm -hmm. uh, materials, but... Not too long ago, I read something about the trajectory of the female education leader. Mm -hmm. And I know you uh, referred to kind of the length of time it takes if your goal is to be a superintendent mm -hmm. and the arenas that we, you know, curriculum being one that we tend to see being um, heavily populated with uh, female leaders. Mm -hmm. um, and also the idea that Internally, we as women mm -hmm. often see um, our journey being one where it's really important, and I'm not saying men don't feel this way, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When, when you look at some of the, you know, the anecdotal information mm -hmm. in the interviews, that women see, okay, now I'm the director of curriculum. Mm -hmm. I really need to master this. Mm -hmm. I really need to understand this before I and have an impact, before I even think about going to the next step. Mm -hmm. So this idea that women choose, and this is not all women, of mm -hmm. course, right. but choose to go up that ladder slowly mm -hmm. because they feel that it's a matter of developing that expertise. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, you know, maybe men aren't as consumed with that idea. Um, mm -hmm. So there seems to be um, a, a, a difference there, That's powerful, speaking. what you're saying, because my next question to you would be, why? Um, is it inherent, which I definitely don't agree, that the men don't want to be sure, of course. well-versed on right. their job? I know right. they want to be. There's some excellent male superintendents. But if a woman feels the need to master to that level, what are the particular factors that influence that? That would be an excellent study even going forward. What makes someone feel like, I better not do this, I better master this? 
Now, I would project to say that my assumption on that is that often when you look at issues of recovery after perhaps a situation in a role that did not go as planned for a leader, mm. women have a much weaker network in order to garner some of that trajectory to a new position. Also, that applies to uh, superintendents, African-American, Latino. Mm -hmm. They may have a network, but it may not be nearly as broad. And then when you think of the perception of perhaps some of the prior stereotyping or the embedded stereotyping that exists, folks sometimes may feel as though if I mess up, or if it's perceived that I messed up, I don't have any way out. Or my opportunities for getting back in the, the arena are limited. So currently, one of the directions that um, I'm going with my research partner uh, overseas, really looking at um, when we did the original research uh, with the African-American superintendents here, looking at how do white male leaders who are pri primarily, in many cases, mentors to superintendents, whether they be female or whether they be from an underrepresented racial group. Mm -hmm. How do these leaders now begin to understand this issue of intersectionality mm -hmm. and this issue of lack of channels for other leaders, which is where you and I have said we need to really collaborate and do something to support that. So how does that white male leader now say, you know, I recognize that the channel for success for let's say this black female superintendent is different than me. Mm -hmm. I recognize that perhaps the skills and set of skills that she possesses may or may not be fully recognized by the community she serves or by the powers that be or even the board. The board may have questions I recognize as this white male superintendent who is successful that she may be functioning under a different paradigm than me. Mm -hmm. Now, in my role, either as a colleague or as a mentor, how do I now fill that gap? What strategies do I have to mm -hmm. support her with? What brokering do I need to do on the outside to help her have a successful run? I just think that goes into what we talked about mm -hmm. when you were even talking about parental engagement understanding the landscape and when we originally started putting on different lenses. So that's where I've been going with my research partner now is to say how do we now build strategies and understandings so that it can be a collaboration between leaders not a competition. Last question is from the perspective of somebody who's um, let's say a teacher in a school Mm -hmm. um, who is craving for um, leadership opportunities, has demonstrated success, however you define that in terms of working with students and um, taking on different um, leadership roles, but has, is fun and is not part of the, I'll say, dominant culture mm -hmm. of um, that school community, district community, larger community. Um, what might be some ways um, this person can think about um, I don't want to say advancing career as if it's um, just a career decision, but in terms of fulfillment, in terms of realizing a personal mission. Are there ways for them to think about mm -hmm. um, moving up that ladder and still remaining authentic to themselves, since we've used the word authenticity mm -hmm. quite a bit? I appreciate that question because it's important for them to first of all identify how their own personal mission and vision. I ask my students on a regular, what's your mantra? Mm. Then I pull out the video of the Buddhist monk repeating over and over again their mantra. I said, he's repeating something that's important to him. What are you repeating in your mind that's important to you? Mm. I'd say that's the first step. Because when we function under organizational structure, often we become the recipients of other people's values. Right. right? So that leader or that burgeoning leader or that teacher needs to say, why do I teach? What's my core? What's my center? And what's my mission and vision? Now, how does that relate to this mission and vision? Mm -hmm. So if my mission and vision is equity, excuse me, access and equity for all children, where does that fit? 
And then within that, reflect that in everything they do, whether it be what they participate in at campus, at that school campus, how they engage with their parents, right? How they deliver instruction. And even in the conversations that this particular teacher has with their superiors, with their principal, and if the superintendent, even in constructing ideas about programmatic additions or programmatic changes, being active on the school improvement committee, making sure that they find a voice, whether it be through a blog if they're allowed to do that, mm -hmm. that continues to what? Support their vision in line. It needs to be in line with that of the school vision. That's the first step. As they're doing that in their current role, they're simultaneously preparing themselves for the next role. And they're broadening their professional development through engaging opportunities that are hosted. They're also broadening their alignment with professional organizations so they can increase their network. And they're staying on top of the research so they become a resource to themselves and their school community. That automatically prepares them for ultimate success, whether it be at that institution or whether they be the prime candidate for another institution that would be right. glad to have them. That's right. I really liked, I really appreciate, and this was not planned, mm -hmm. how we're, we're wrapping up focused on the same ideas that we started with. Ideas around reflection, knowing yourself, mm -hmm. being authentic, um, and being aware, and then expanding that awareness and expanding the lenses you use. And whether it's the lens in terms of um, understanding other people, the lens in terms of what my career trajectory is or should be, um, very powerful for And me. I would think, um, just, uh, just to, to keep us on the literature piece, because we all love reading, wasn't it Shakespeare that said, to thine own self be That's true? Right. That's right. And don't be afraid to leave either. And then I would say to those teachers or leaders, if you find that your personal mantra, what you really believe in is in conflict with the organizational, then don't be afraid to seek That's right. the next step somewhere else. Thank you. That was Carol Collins Ian Laja, an assistant professor at Eastern Illinois University. To learn more about the Consortium for Educational Change and TURN, visit cecweb.org and turnweb.org.